Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Module 4 podcast. We are again in Chapter 16, starting on page 269 under electrolytes, a little section. So it talks about that electrolytes are substances whose molecules disassociate or split into ions and then placed in water. Ions are electrically charged particles. Cations are positively charged, and examples of those are sodium, potassium, and calcium and magnesium. And anons are negatively charged ions, and examples are bicarbonate, chloride, and phosphate. Um, then it talks about the, me- the measurement of electrolytes, the concentration of electrolytes in body fluid is expressed in milliequivalents per liter. And then electrolyte composition varies between your ECF and your ICF. In the ECF, the main cation is sodium with a small amount of potassium, calcium, and magnesium. The primary ECF anion is chloride with a small amount of bicarbonate, sulfate, and phosphate ions. And then in ICF, the prevalent cation is potassium with small amounts of magnesium and sodium. And the prevalent ICF ion is phosphate. So all of that should be a little bit of just a review of getting you back to thinking about electrolytes. We're going to jump to page 276 under sodium imbalances. So, um, you know, sodium is the main cation in ECF. It plays a major role in maintaining the concentration and volume of ECF and influencing water distribution between the ECF and ICF. Um, And sodium is really important in generating and transmitting nerve impulses, muscle contractility, and regulating acid-base balance. Changes in serum sodium levels can reflect primary water imbalances, Um, or primary sodium imbalance or a combination of the two. Reminder that the GI tract absorbs sodium from foods. Um, Typically our daily intake of sodium far exceeds the body's daily requirements. And then sodium leaves the body through urine, sweat, and feces. And the kidneys are the, you know, the primarily one who regulates sodium balance. Now, now they're going to go, we're going to talk about hypernutremia, which is high serum sodium, and then hyponutremia, which is low serum sodium. And if you want to take a look at table 16.4, you'll see under there causes and manifestations. So you have to have a working knowledge of what are the causes, um, what are some of the most common diseases that cause, can cause these electrolyte imbalances. But what we're going to stop, we're not going to go into the actual management of the disease. So we're going to learn a lot about uh, kidney failure is a big influence of our electrolyte balance. So if someone's in renal failure, that's going to affect electrolytes, but we're not going to talk about how the treatments we're going to do for renal failure, how we would care for that patient, except to know that dialysis is sometimes a tool that we need to use to help regulate their fluid balance and also their electrolyte balance. So we're going to talk about hypernutremia. Um, It can happen for a couple different reasons. It could be the person didn't take in enough water or they had a lot of water loss. Um, Rarely it's because they had too much sodium gained. Um, 
So because sodium is the major determinant of ECF osmolarity, hypernutremia causes hyperosmolarity. So ECF hyperosmolarity causes water to move out of the cells to restore equilibrium, leading to cellular dehydration. Um, usually hypernutremia is not a problem of an alert person who has access to water, can sense thirst, or is able to swallow. Um, hypernutremia from water deficit is often the result of an impaired consciousness or an inability to um, obtain fluids on their own. So maybe they have some kind of mobility um, issue or possibly have a neurological problem. Um, you know, excess sodium intake with inadequate, inadequate water intake can also lead to hypernutremia. You know, sodium gain can come from having an excess amount of isotonic sodium chloride. So what are the clinical manifestations? So, you know, they're primarily the result of the water shifting out of the cells into the ECF. And then there's a dehydration and then a shrinkage of the cells. So dehydration of brain cells result in changes in mental status, which means your patient could be drowsy, restless, confused, could have lethargy, could have seizure, or even a coma. If there's, you know, if we have had also a volume deficit, you could also see postural hypotension, tachycardia, and weakness. When we talk about the nursing interventions that we would do, um, really, we're going to hear this a lot, but we're going to manage the hypernutremia depends on the underlying cause and what their volume status is. So if it's because of a water deficit, then we need to give them fluid replacement. So either we're going to increase our oral intake or an IV with isotonic solution. If the problem is from excessive sodium, um, so they could, maybe we have, they, they would give them IV fluids such as 5% dextrose that would help have excrete the sodium with diuretics. Dietary sodium is often restricted in hypernutremia. We would monitor our sodium levels um, and your serum osmolarity. Um, and really knowing that even though we know we have to get those fluids to cut the, the sodium level to come down, we don't want to do it quickly because if we quickly reduce the levels, it can cause a rapid shift of water back into the cells, which can cause cerebral edema and then have neurological issues. Then we're going to go into hypernutremia. And again, don't forget to look back on chart um, table 16.4. So hypernutremia is low sodium, um, serum sodium, and this can be from May, re may result because there's a loss of sodium-containing fluids, water excess into the relationship of amount of sodium, or a combination of both. Um, hypernutremia is usually associated with ECF hypoosmolarity from excess water. And then to restore balance, fluid shifts out of the ECF into the cells, leading to cellular edema. Common causes of hyponatremia is a loss of sodium-rich body fluids. So that could be from a wound that's draining, from diarrhea, from vomiting, or if they have adrenal insufficiency. 
Also, it could have been that they were given an inappropriate amount or use of sodium-free or hypotonic IV fluids. Um, so basically, they have too much water on board. Um, people who have a psychiatric disorder may um, actually say, have something called water intoxication where they take in too much water. And then you'll hear about the sodium of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone secretion with SIADH. And so this results in a dilutional hyponutremia because there's too much water that's retained. So what are the things we're going to see, the signs and symptoms? So the manifestations are due to cellular swelling and first appear in the central nervous system. So if it's mild, um, they may have like symptoms like a headache, irritability, or difficulty concentrating. More severe hyponatremia can lead to confusion, vomiting, seizures, even coma. And if it's, if it's really severe... Um, they can develop rapidly irreversible neurological damage or death from brain herniation. So we think about what are our interventions. So we have to, if it's because they have hyponatremia because they've lost fluid, we want to replace that fluid. Um, that could be with IV fluids or encouraging PO intake. And then we would be withholding diuretics. There could be a fluid restriction that would be part of their care. Loop diuretics um, could be given if they have dilutional hyponatremia, so they have too much fluid on board. Um, and then if it's more serious, so that your sodium level is, is quite low, um, usually in the, if it's in the 120s, they may use hypertonic saline solution, so 3% sodium chloride. And this will help restore um, the sodium level while the body's returning to a normal water balance. Um, if this patient does have SIADH, they may use some different drugs called Convaprin or Talopropin, which is kind of a vasopressor receptor agonist drugs that can block that, that antidiuretic hormone. And so what that's done is trying to help um, restore normal water balance. Um, so with these patients, we're going to monitor their serum sodium. Um, we're going, you know, to make sure that we're increasing their sodium level, but not quickly increasing because if that happens, we can do permanent damage to nerve cells in the brain. We're going to be watching our I and O, so looking at their urine output is going to be important. Um, and then if this patient is having seizures because their sodium level is too low, we would want to make sure that seizure precautions are in place. Now we're going to move on to potassium. So potassium is the major ICF cation. Um, so it's important in the resting membrane potential of nerve and muscle cells. Potassium imbalances also affect neuromuscular and cardiac function. Potassium um, is involved with regulating intracellular osmolarity and promoting cellular growth. The main source of potassium is from our diet. 
it is important for you to be aware that um, sometimes salt substitutes are used in low sodium diets and they actually, the main component of that could be potassium. We can also get potassium from IV fluids, from transfusions, and even some medications. Kidneys are the primary route for potassium loss. Um, large amount of urine output can cause an excessive potassium loss. Impaired kidney function can cause potassium retention. So then we're going to go into hyperkalemia, and then I'll bring your attention to table 16.5 that talks about potassium imbalances. So hyperkalemia is going to be high serum potassium, and this can result from impaired kidney function or a shift of potassium from the ICF to the ECF, um, too large of an intake of, pass of potassium or combination. Um, the most common cause of hyperkalemia is renal failure. Um, also, we're gonna, you're going to learn in Module 5 about acidosis. Um, so in metabolic acidosis, potassium shifts, ions shift from the ICF to the ECF in exchange for hydrogen ions moving into the cell. So putting that on your back burner, that's going to be really important when we talk about acid-base balance in Module 5. Um, also, digoxin-like drugs and some beta blockers can impair the entry of potassium into cells. Um, NSAIDs, potassium-sparing diuretics, um, angiotensin II receptor blockers, ACE inhibitors can contribute to hyperkalemia. So what kinds of signs and symptoms are we going to see? So really, when we have this increased potassium concentration outside the cell, it's going to result in cell excitability and changes in the transmission of nerve and muscle impulses. So changes in cardiac conduction is a significant problem, um, and so we need to be aware of that. Patients can also have symptoms of fatigue, confusion, tetany, muscle cramps, paresthesias, and weakness. As potassium increases, the loss of muscle tone and weakness or paralysis of other skeletal muscles that can include respiratory muscles can occur and this could lead to respiratory arrest. Also, there can be abdominal cramping, vomiting, and diarrhea from hyperactivity of the GI smooth muscles. So then we're going to turn the page to the nursing interventions. And so when we talk about hyperkalemia, the first thing we need to do is to stop oral and parental potassium intake. And so take a look at table 16.6 and then also that you would stop any medications you were giving um, that would have potassium in it. We would also try to increase that how much potassium is excreted. So you, you may see that the patient is giving a loop diuretic. Um, they could even be put on dialysis. Or there's a drug that is a, a, a K-exalate, which is sodium polystrene sulfonate, um, can be given orally or rectally. And so this is used to bind potassium in the bowel and to try and help get rid of that potassium out of their system. Um, there are also, you can force potassium from the ECF to the ICF. Um, so you can actually give a combination of regular insulin and then dextrose, um, which will help shift potassium into the cells.
and then try to stabilize the cardiac membrane. IV calcium chloride or calcium gluconate um, can help protect life-threatening dysrhythmias as you're getting the potassium level down. Um, when potassium levels are only mildly elevated um, and kidneys are still fun functioning, it may be enough to get that level down by withholding potassium from their diet and any IV sources, um, by giving diuretics. Um, if they have um, severe hyperkalemia, they should have treatment to force potassium into the cells. Most important thing is to make sure that these patients are on continuous ECG monitoring because of these deadly arrhythmias that can happen. If they do have arrhythmias, they should be given the IV calcium immediately. And you would want to monitor their blood pressure and keep monitoring their potassium level. For hypokalemia, don't forget to look back at table 16.5. Um, it's low serum potassium can result from an increased loss of potassium or an increased shift of potassium from the ECF to the ICF. Um, and, or they could take too much dietary um, intake of potassium, but that's rarely what the problem is. The most common cause of these abnormal losses are from the kidneys or the GI tract. So if you think about, you know, large amount of diarrhea, someone who's misusing laxatives or vomiting, or if they have an ileostomy that's drainage, draining. Um, or if you have renal losses, that could be like if a person has a large amount of um, diuretics giving, or they have a low magnesium levels. So other factors that can cause potassium to move from the ECF to the ICF are insulin therapy. So we'll talk about this in a few weeks about our patient who um, is, comes in with diabetic ketoacidosis. And when we start our insulin therapy for those very high glucose levels, we have to really be careful about what our potassium levels are doing because they, they could drop. Um, alkalosis, which you're going to learn about in Module 5, causes a shift of potassium into the cells for exchange for the hydrogen, lowering the potassium in the ECF, which causes hypokalemia. So the clinical manifestations is it's going to affect the resting membrane potential. Um, and so what this is going to do, what you're going to see is impaired muscle contraction, and so it could change cardiac and muscle function. So the most serious problem, again, is our cardiac changes. Um, you could also have muscle, skeletal muscle weakness, paresthesias, um, and severe hypokalemia could cause paralysis. This usually happens in the extremities, but it could lead to, um, they could have a paralysis of their respiratory muscles, and that could lead to you know, respiratory arrest. There could be changes in the smooth muscle function leading to decreased GI motility, so they could have things like constipation or a paralytic ileus. Um, and so what are, is our nursing implementation, our interventions? It's going to be that we have to um, manage our hypokalemia by increasing um, potassium. So either that means orally or IV um, or from dietary. If it's mild hypokalemia, usually um, potassium-rich foods can help to correct that. So I also want you to see on page 281, there's a safety alert 
um, for IV potassium. This is super, super important. I know you've had this information before um, in your pharmacology class, but you do need to be prepared that on this exam, there will be several questions making sure that you are you understand how to safely give IV potassium. So look at that safety alert. Also know that it should not exceed 10 milliequivalents an hour. Um, they need to have continuous IV monitoring. Um, it can be very irritating to the veins. We have to check for plebitis. Um, it should always be on an infusion pump. You have to be careful that um, we would not want to give potassium supplementation if their urine output is really low. Um, so we have to watch their urine output if they're on um, digoxin. They could this you know having been on digoxin, um, and if they have low serum potassium, it could lead to dig toxicity. And so there are signs of dig toxicity, which patients could have confusion, lethargy, GI problems, and even visual problems. Um, and then looking at table 16.7, the prevention of hypokalemia, um, I think that's really important to, re to look at that, and that's important information that we would want to teach our patients. So I'm going to stop here, and then podcast two will cover um, the rest of the electrolytes, which will be calcium, phosphate, and magnesium. Thanks for listening.